0: welcome to the weekend university podcast and this is your host Niall McKeever the weekend university was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public to do this we organize lecture days where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists authors and university professors if you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. This week we have a lecture on Carl Jung, Abraham Maslow and the mechanics of meaning from Gary Lachman. Gary is the author of 21 books on topics ranging from the evolution of consciousness to literary suicides, popular culture and the history of the occult. He has written a rock and roll memoir of the 1970s, biographies of Alistair Crowley, Colin Wilson and C.G. Young, histories of Hermeticism and the Western inner tradition, and studies in existentialism and the philosophy of consciousness. Gary's writing has appeared in the Sunday Times, The Guardian and The Independent on Sunday and he lectures regularly in the UK, the US and Europe. Before becoming a full-time writer, he studied philosophy, managed a New Age bookshop, taught English literature, and was a science writer for UCLA. Gary was also a founding member of the pop group Blondie, and in 2006, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Enjoy the show.
1: I was asked to talk about Jung, and uh, I just jumped at the chance of giving this lecture, so I said yes, of course. Uh, I've written a book about Jung, and Jung is one of the first people that I uh, ever read uh, in this sort of milieu uh, when I was a teenager in high school. But I'm cheating a little bit because it's not only Jung. It's Jung and a couple other people that I'm very interested in, uh, and one writer in particular, a fellow named Colin Wilson, uh, who I've written a book about. He's written a book about Jung, and he's written also a book about Maslow. So they all kind of connect, and the actual ideas I'm going to be talking about uh, link up. And what I'm trying to do, actually, is when I was preparing this talk, um, I had a, something else in mind, and as I was doing it, I, I saw what I'm going to talk about now. So it's kind of very fresh. It's sort of a ideas in progress, as it were. Um, but uh, having said that, where are we? Here we go. Um, I, we're talking about Jung today because Jung himself said that um, most of the, the people who came to him, they weren't suffering from any kind of clinical neuroses, but from a lack of meaning in their life. Uh, So the idea of meaning, meaninglessness, search for meaning, absence of meaning is something that we can say is peculiar to our time. Uh, But in itself, it's not uh, an absolutely new idea. Uh, We tend to associate notion of meaninglessness with contemporary times or say since the rise of science. But the idea of uh, the value or meaning of human life, of existence itself, uh, has been questioned practically since human beings began to think. Uh, Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun and even that wasn't new when he said it. Um, Aristotle said it's best to die young and it's even better not to be born. Um, This was something that Sophocles, the Greek uh, 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 tragic dramatist, he agreed with. And um, Plato's, uh, Aristotle's teacher Plato, uh, his teacher Socrates said that philosophy was a preparation for death. Uh, so, um, Aristotle, Sophocles, and uh, Socrates' assessment uh, were sort of reiterated in recent times, fairly recent times, by the Romanian philosopher E.M. uh with the title of his book, The Trouble with Being Born, uh, which seems to uh, sort of say it all. Um, and, you know, other people tell us other things. Uh, the Buddha says life is suffering. That's pretty much it. That's it. And the best thing to do is to avoid suffering. Uh, In some cases, I think, and you may take argument with this, that amounts to avoiding living. Uh, That's one sense why I've never been particularly interested in Buddhism, because it's it's sort of detaching from life in order not to feel the suffering. And uh, this is why Nietzsche said it was more, it wasn't a religion, it was actually a scientific method uh, to deal with the problem of suffering. Uh, But Buddha wasn't the only one to say, you know, life is no picnic. Uh, We have Shakespeare telling us that it's a tale told by an idiot and it signifies nothing that's even worse um, I think than what the, the Buddha was telling us um, or conversely it's just a show and not to be taken too seriously life is a cabaret old chum um, you know come to the cabaret so eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die um, so sit back enjoy yourself after all nothing matters and I think in our postmodern time, that seems to be an idea that's kind of prevalent. Uh, we seem to be we just kind of accept that you know, okay, life doesn't mean anything. We're not going to get worried about it in the way that previous generations did. Say the existentialists, they stayed up all night because they were concerned that life didn't mean anything. Postmodernists today, we don't care about it. It's just it doesn't matter. It's just a joke. Um, but I would also say that in relatively recent times, in the last couple centuries or so, the question of the meaning of life. Life in general, and one's own in particular, has become a more widespread concern. Until relatively recently, human beings have been, as H.G. Wells put it in his uh, book, An Outline of History, up against it for most of their life. And they've been too thoroughly engaged in bare survival to give much thought to such existential concerns. And even if there were those who did feel a pressing need for some larger meaning to their lives, There was the church and the routine and discipline of the monastery or the convert. So in older times, past times, there was some place to go. If you had a desperate need for some kind of sense of meaning, there was some place to go and you could pursue that outside of the everyday life. But Wells also saw, and you may think it's interesting I'm talking about Wells because we usually just think about him as the time machine in War of the Worlds, but he actually wrote a great many books um, in in the sort of early 20th century basically about what we should do with our lives, basically about how we can give meaning to our lives, and how we can gain control of them, he, he, both in the individual, but he was more concerned in society as general and as a, a kind of overall re, remapping or, or re-structuring re, uh, sort of, of modern life in order to gain greater control over it. Um, but Wells also saw that because the struggle for survival has pretty much been won, at least here we are today. We can, avoid, uh, we can afford the luxury of coming in on a rainy afternoon to hear a lecture about meaning. We don't have to be out getting food and foraging and hunting and all that kind of thing. Um, so people do have more leisure now and have more time to ask these kinds of questions. And at the same time, the kinds of answers that the church used to provide uh, are no longer adequate for most people. Uh, in fact, for Wells and people like him, none of the traditional ways in which people had earlier understood themselves and their lives seem adequate. Wells said of his time, and this, he says this in his experiment autobiography, which is a wonderful book. Uh, if you ever get, uh, see it on you know sort of a, a secondhand bin somewhere, uh, pick it up, because it's actually a, a remarkable book. Uh, he says, yes, you can say you earn a living, you support a family, you love and hate, but What do you do? What gives your life meaning and purpose and a sense of direction so that it is something more than an aimless drifting from day to day? Now that the pressure of mastering nature and securing a safe, comfortable, stable life has lessened, what do you do with your energies? Wells even wrote a book addressing that question. And here we are. What are we to do with our lives? Now, I'm sneaking in um, one of my favorites here. Now, the kind of people that Wells was talking about, people that were dissatisfied with the aims and purposes and meanings uh, of everyday life, who wanted something more, um, they're very much like the kind of people that the British writer Colin Wilson called outsiders. These are individuals with a great hunger and need for purpose and meaning beyond the everyday. And not only do they have the hunger and need, but they have the energies available to them to put into the pursuit of these things. But they have a problem. They can find no place for themselves in a world in which meaning is inessential. That's why they're outsiders. There's no place for them inside the general culture. The monasteries that once may have housed them or no more, not in the sense that they don't exist. They're still there. But the belief in the meaning and purpose that they used to symbolize is no longer strong and can no longer provide what it used to provide. And even though lots of people today, you know, they, go, they hitchhike off to the ashram or maybe down to the rainforest, it's not quite the same thing as putting yourself into a, a monastery, say, in the Middle Ages. It's not exactly the same uh, sort of intense and uh, complete a submission to uh, a whole new idea of meaning and purpose and, and structure to your life. Now, granted, there are so many people today who are satisfied with living day to day and with fulfilling their basic needs and little more. If they are well fed and entertained, all is well. I suspect some of them are in that photograph there. Um, but those people aren't going to be here. They're not going to take time out on a Sunday afternoon, even if it's raining, uh, to come here and attend a lecture on meaning. So I don't think I have to spend a lot of time in explaining how you know, buying things and being a consumer and acquiring lots of material goods, how uh, that's not a particularly uh, successful route to meaning. I suspect either you, you know that already, or you wouldn't be here, or you, know, you, you found that out someplace else. So I don't think I need to labor that. Um, but the kind of person Wells is talking about would be here. So I suspect that you are the kind of people that Wells was talking about. You are the kind of people that are seeking some more intense, some more vivid and urgent and immediate sense of meaning and purpose in your life by devoting yourself to aims and purposes and goals and values that are beyond just you know, keeping yourself alive. Wells himself said that if he could not get on with his real work, undisturbed and unhindered, which was the creative work of the mind, he had no interest in carrying on living. Mere eating and drinking and fornicating, of which Wells did more than his fair share, he was an incorrigible womanizer, Um, they were not enough. That was the life of an animal and the way to certain death. For Wells, meaning was a serious business and needed to be taken seriously. And I would say that in our day, even more people are asking this Wellesian sort of question. What do you do, really? Or what do I do, for that matter? And ironically, they ask it against a backdrop of tacit meaninglessness that it stunned Wells when he first became aware of it. Now, if you know anything about Wells, he was the prophet of science. Uh, he was the prophet of the, of, of the new world, the modern world coming out of the 19th century. And he had this vision of of a very glowing, rational, optimistic, positive future, where society has cleared up all its muddle, and human beings have got rid of all these stupid old habits and old traditions and are able to carry on in this new, uh, modern kind of way. Um, But when he first realized that that vision had collapsed. And that was, uh, he spent a great deal of time, he had this idea of the world state, which he was trying to get um, people behind, uh, and uh, didn't really work. They didn't really pay attention to him. And then when World War II happened, uh, he basically collapsed into despair. And uh, he spent the last years of his life in despair. And if you know his last book, called Mind at the End of Its Tether, uh, basically describes uh, his rejection of his earlier sort of scientific optimism and rationalism. And he basically Although he never possibly read a page of Sartre or Camus or any of the existentialists, he basically accepted that uh, more or less that vision was true. That human life and the universe weren't going along in any kind of parallel path. They drifted off completely in opposite directions. And human life had nothing to do with the actualities of reality. Um, but, but let me give you a few examples of the kind of tacit meaninglessness that uh, Wells uh, awoken to. Uh, in uh, the years just after World War II. So uh, for Jean-Paul Sartre, who's the doyen of left-bank existentialism, it's meaningless that we live, and it's meaningless that we die. (coughs) Uh, At the end of being in nothingness, which kind of tells you something about what Sartre was preoccupied with, uh, man, Sartre tells us, is a useless passion. Uh, Samuel Beckett um, reiterates what Ecclesiastes already told us, uh, in his uh, unreadable novel, Murphy. I don't know about you. I've tried. I can't get through it. Uh, but he declares that the sun shone having no alternative on the nothing new. So that gives you an idea uh, that right, Ecclesiastes was right. There's nothing new under the sun. And Beckett uh, echoed him many years later. Uh, but not to leave out science, which is uh, often tagged as ushering in, our age of meaninglessness. In order to understand the laws of planetary motion we had to kick the angels off the stars. Uh, they're just balls of gas and they move according to certain physical laws. In order for us to understand that we had to demythologize, you know, basically subtract the meaning out of the universe which re- religion had put it there. Uh, this gentleman here is uh, the astrophysicist Steven Weinberg and uh, at the end of his book called The First Three Minutes, which is about the first three minutes of, of the Big Bang, uh, I, I have to say I have an argument against the Big Bang. I'll do it very quickly. Size is relative? Yes? If there was nothing else, how could it be big, small, or anything? Right? A bang? There's no atmosphere in space. Doesn't make a noise. There were no ears to hear it. So it was the indefinably sized dud as, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but Steven Weinberg felt something different. Uh, and at the end of his book about the first three minutes, and he's only talking about the first three minutes of, of, of creation, but he's already summed it up, and he says, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless. You'd wonder if he, if he stayed around for the rest of the film. You know, um, he might have got a different idea. But it's not only science. The humanities that used to uphold meaning against the erosion of meaning by science, they've, they've thrown in the towel. And they're doing the same thing too. And you have uh, the whole postmodern deconstructive project that has dominated Western intellectuals for decades now, is precisely an exercise in erasing any trace of the delusion of meaning, except for relative ones, from the philosophical, political, social, c- cultural, and any other conversations. And one of the people responsible for that is this gentleman there, Jacques Derrida. I won't go into that. Now, fine and dandy, these are some philosophical reflections on meaning. They may seem somewhat abstract. I would suspect you're here today because you're interested in meaning in your own life, not in what philosophers and writers have to say about it. That's fair enough. Someone who has experienced meaning in the way that we'll be trying to grasp it this afternoon will not be easily swayed from his conviction by argument. That's why I think it would be pointless to try and define meaning. Definitions are not that important. They're merely labels to help us find things. They're they're signposts. What is important is that we know how to recognize meaning when we experience it. Meaning is something that's experienced. It's something, I think it's really out there in the world. But we don't, we just give a tacit kind of acknowledgement. But when we really feel it, we really experience it, then we know that it's meaning. It has a power. You know, what can we say? I'll just be using words that I'll have to use other words to define. You know what I mean. It's an experience. It's existential. It's something felt. It's something vivid. It's something that's visceral. What's important here, I, I would say, is some, it's, it's symbols. Symbols work better than definitions. Uh, an image or a phrase can revive the sense of meaning. You know, you can could, you could see something that reminds you of some past event and suddenly that's brought back to you. And that's something that we'll, we'll, we'll get to uh, further on. Um, music often does it. You know, a phrase of music can lift you up and suddenly you're filled It's some sort of, uh, well, what uh, G.K. Chesterton called absurd good news. You don't know why, but suddenly you feel happy. This music has filled you with meaning, I would say. Even a smell. And in at least one case we will look at, it's a piece of cake. Now, perhaps we should go about this from the other side. What is it like when our lives feel meaningless? What is it like when we don't have meaning? Okay, That's sort of saying, what's it like when we're hungry? We know what it's like when we're hungry. Something's lacking. Here's Shakespeare again. He wasn't a cheerful guy, I don't think. Hamlet tells us how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all of the uses of the world. Nothing interests him. He has no m- motivation to do one thing or another. He doesn't care to do one thing or another. Uh, there was a Novel in the 19th century, I don't think it's read as much these days, um, by a Frenchman named Etienne Pervert de Senancourt, and it's called Obermann. And uh, the eponymous protagonist in it says, The rain depresses me, yet the sunlight strikes me as pointless. So uh, there again, it's a kind of Begettian kind of look. Uh, And again, if you know Beckett's kind of characters in in the plays, they're like like in a trash can and they see no reason to get out of it, you know, something like that. Um, Over here is uh, the cover of an edition of uh, the novel Oblomov by uh, the Russian writer Goncharov. And the main character spends his days in bed or sitting on a stove because he sees no reason to do otherwise. Now, granted, uh, Goncharov was Russian. And they are a people afflicted with their own peculiar inertia, I have to say. I'm, I'm working on a book now uh, about the return of Holy Russia. And this is one of the typical uh, characteristics of, of the Russians. They have a kind of inertia. And then they have this kind of manic explosion. It's sort of one, one or the other. Uh, they don't kind of have the easy kind of thing that the Westerners seem to have. Um, and I would say it's no coincidence that nihilism, which is the active belief in nothing, in meaninglessness itself arose in that land of contradictions, arose in the land of Russia. Now, my favorite, my favorite definition of a nihilist comes from um, the American historian Jacques Barzin, who died a few years ago at the age, I think, of 107. So I think he picked up a few things along the line. But he said, a nihilist is someone who believes in nothing and does nothing about it, which I, I, I always think is very, very, very good. Um, but it's not only Russians that feel this sense of meaninglessness and the paralysis that comes from it. Um, W.H. Auden summed up this condition when life has dried up and lost all its savor. In his poem no use raising a shout, he nails it when he writes put the car away when life fails, what's the good of going to Wales? And again if you're familiar with Colin Wilson's work this is a tagline he uses a lot and I'm just copying a lot of things that that Wilson did so I'm letting you know full disclosure, well half disclosure, we're halfway through the lecture but it's in there. Um, This means that you've gotten to a state of such meaninglessness and pointlessness that even a holiday won't get you out of it. Now, when you're like that, you're in the hands of what the poet William Blake called the specter. The specter was this kind of dark anti, anti-self. That it's like the old man of the sea. He kind of climbs on top of your back and he stops you, doesn't let you go. You're in that. When your life has failed, nothing seems worth doing. And this is a very dangerous condition to be in. It could lead to suicide when the feeling of life being pointless becomes too much to bear. Now, I've written a book about suicide and and writers. And believe me, many of them are never too far from the pistol or the noose, or dagger or bowl, filled with poison, as William James, who we'll get onto, himself a potential suicide, remarked. Two of the people I'll be talking about, I'll I'll get around to them soon enough, Um, Jung and Wilson, both of them considered suicide. Jung talked about how he kept a loaded pistol under his pillow at night when he was going through his crisis in order to blow his brains out if it got too tough. And uh, one of his sons later on commented about what it was like to have a father who had a loaded pistol under the the pillow all the time. Uh, Wilson got fairly close to committing suicide when he was a teenager. Uh, He got very, very close. He almost drank um, sulfuric acid uh, in a chemistry class. But an act of imagination somehow allowed him to grasp what it would be like when he actually drank the poison, what it would feel like in his throat. And he realized that's not what he wanted. He didn't want less life, he wanted more life, like his outsiders. They want life more abundant. And life failure is the opposite, when that desire for life more abundant has been completely stalled and, and, and completely blocked. And the other side of it is life failure can lead to violence, when in a manic effort to feel alive, One is driven to some wild act, some explosion of purpose, however dark, in order to get the vital energies flowing again and to feel, however briefly, a sense of meaning. Now, this is something that Wilson has written quite a bit about. He's written lots of books about crime and the psychology of crime. And he applies existential philosophy to the psychology of crime. And one of the things that he's discovered is that a great many sort of serial killers, it's a kind of frustrated drive to growth the kind of frustrated development they're stunted individuals who they can't deal with life in the same way that we do and this this frustration builds up and builds up and it, they explode in this these acts and briefly they feel a kind of sense of life and vitality it's it's horrible it's morbid it's morbid and horrible because these people are so afflicted with life failure that they're driven to such desperate acts in order to feel something that you know which should be normal now What we're going to do this afternoon is look at some ideas about how to get the vital energies that are necessary for our experience of meaning flowing without resorting to violent methods. Violent methods can work. Jung, William James, and uh, the enigmatic uh, esoteric teacher Gurdjieff and others, they relied on what James called the bullying method uh, often. This is a way of forcing neurotic patients whom life failure had made practically immobile into making efforts, that at first the patients resisted mightily. They put up such a fuss. They just would not do it. But when they finally did, there was a tremendous influx of energy, a tremendous influx of life. James describes it as first distress and then joy. There's a horrible feeling of distress. They just simply can't do it. And then bang, for no reason whatsoever, seemingly, suddenly they're overwhelmed with this tremendous sense of well-being and power. And this is something that... uh, there's James. J- James writes about this in a very important essay called The Energies of Man. James is, one, James is a remarkable. I mean, we, don't, we, don't, we know his principles of psychology. That's sort of the big book for him. Uh, but you really get the essence of James from his essays. And he has an essay called The Energies of Man, where he talks about this phenomena of second wind, or this phenomena where we just talked about, where um, the, the neuroaesthetic patient who's so afflicted with life failure they can't do anything is forced to make some kind of action, and then suddenly has this tremendous influx of energy. The phenomenon of second wind with athletes, runners who can't, that's it, they're at the end, they can't, there's nothing left, completely empty, and they manage to push themselves just a little bit more and bang, an extra tank of petrol suddenly appears, and they're zooming ahead. And you can find this in other cases like that. James came to the conclusion that we are accustomed to degrees of fatigue which we obey only out of habit. We accept limitations on our access to our energy because we feel that's it. But when the neuroesthetic patient is forced to do more than he feels is really the limit, he discovers I had, you know, a million dollars in the bank and I didn't know. Same thing about the athlete who's forced to do more. You confront these artificial limits. Of fatigue, and when you confront them and push past them, suddenly you're given this new energy. And this can happen spontaneously. This can happen out of nowhere. It happened to the poet W.B. Yeats quite a bit. He's always always experiencing these sudden sort of bursts of vitality and energy. And there's a wonderful poem of his called Vacillation where he says, My 50th year had come and gone. I sat a solitary man in a London shop an open book, an empty cup, on the marble tabletop. And while on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed. And was so great my happiness that for 20 minutes more or less, I was blessed and could bless. He's sitting in Swan and Edgar's, which I don't think is there anymore. He used to be over in Piccadilly. He's having tea, and he's a poet. He's, you know, he's disgusted with the ordinary everyday world. Then suddenly he feels this tremendous sense of well-being. and Everything around him is magical. Yeats is hes very prone to these kinds of things. And in another another poem, um, he talks about how uh, even the wisest man grows tense with some sort of violence. Um, And then when a man is fighting mad, something drops from eyes long blind. He completes his partial mind. Somehow we're only working at half half measures, half speed, half energy. The crisis comes and we're forced to make contact with the other energy and it comes in. Or it just happens by itself. Now, what is true of um, James's neuroesthetic patients is true of us as well, to a lower degree. We all suffer from a, 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 a kind of life failure. We all suffer from a, a kind of tacit devaluing of the things around us. It's called taking things for granted. It's called being familiar. It's called, oh, I'm used to that. Now, the funny thing that we'll find is that the sources of these kind of mystical experiences, not really mystical, we call them intensity experience, affirmation experience, yay-saying experiences, the content of them is exactly the same as the content of our everyday life. Nothing drops from the heavens. It isn't like that somehow we see things differently. We see them more. We see them as we should see them most of the time and not subject to this kind of tacit life failure. Okay, finally, I'm going to be speaking this afternoon about the work of three men, C.G. Jung, Abraham Maslow, and Colin Wilson. More than likely you know about Jung, otherwise you wouldn't have come here this afternoon or you just decided on a chance you're going to check it out and see what he's all about. Uh, You might know about Maslow I don't know, you might know about Wilson. Are these familiar, unfamiliar names? Yep, okay, people know who they are. I, I assume they are. Now, Jung and Maslow have quite a bit in common. Um, they both started out as Freudians. Um, but they left Freudian psychology because they couldn't find a place for meaning in it. And they also couldn't find a really psychologically healthy human being um, in all <laughs> sort of... Uh, the contexts in which they were doing their Freudian um, uh, psychology. Um, but both of them had the insight. They both recognized that meaning was something that was absolutely important in human psychology. Uh, Freud didn't have any time for it. He was a 19th century reductionist scientist who, sense of meaning, beauty, all that, that's just, that's just subjectivity. That's human emotion that we kind of smear on reality in order to make it cozy and all that. But you know, life is really pretty grim, and everything can be reduced to rather simple, kind of crude uh, motivations. Um, and both Jung and Maslow rebelled, rebelled against this. Um, Wilson was a writer. He died in 2013. Um, he made his name for himself. I mentioned the book earlier, called the uh, book The Outsider. It came out in 1956. He was a very young man when it was published. He was 24, uh, and he actually became sort of an overnight sensation. Um, uh, in, in, in the mid '50s, uh, but he was very interested in coming up with what he called a new existentialism, and um, because he, again, the old existentialism—existentialism, existentialism Sartre and Camus and heidegger it's all about meaninglessness. There isn't a vision of meaning in any of those things. Camus asks us, to, you know, he says Sisyphus must be happy, but he doesn't tell us why he should be happy. Sisyphus is pushing that rock up the hill, uh, and it rolls back down. That's human life. You know, that's Ecclesiastes. Uh, that's uh, Senecore saying, you know, it's, it's pointless if the sun shines, you know, after rain. And Camus has an instinct like, well, we have to, there's some something there. and He was a bit closer to the earth, a bit closer to nature and all that than Sartre and, and, and the other existentialists. But even still, he couldn't formulate in any kind of logical, articulate way what some kind of meaning outside of everyday life would be. Uh, and Wilson, he was fascinated with these kind of sudden Bursts of meaning, uh, sudden waves of what's called the the, the sudden waves of energy coming from the source of power, meaning, and purpose within us. And this was happening to these people that he was writing about, these outsiders. Um, These were moments when he was aware of an overwhelming meaning, which is unmistakable and indubitable, rather than the dreary, bleak, gray backdrop that forms the atmosphere of most existentialism. He was interested in what Nietzsche called the great "yea" saying, when Nietzsche felt the idea of thus-bag Zarathustra coming to him, and he felt he was raised up above man in time. He talks about being 6,000 feet above man in time. Um, it w- he felt a sense of well-being beyond the miseries of the world, an indescribable feeling of zest for life that raised him up above his wretchedness and made him blessed, like like Yates did, and all its pain and suffering. Yeats had an easier life than Nietzsche, let me tell you. And Nietzsche had a absolutely wretched life, absolutely wretched. And he's the one who developed this idea of eternal recurrent. You know, he loved life so much in all its wretchedness that he he would say, Encore, I love you, let me have you again. His erstwhile mentor, Schopenhauer, said life is absolutely useless. I, I, I was going to put him in with the other guys, but I thought it'd make it would make you too depressing. Uh, depressed already. But Schopenhauer said, the, you know, the world is just an illusion. It's emptiness. It's it's pointless. It's a will that strives after things, and once it gets them, it it feels ennui, and it strives more, and everything just keeps going on, and it's relentless, pointless. Um, And Schopenhauer had a very nice life, actually. He lived very comfortably. Uh, Nietzsche was wretched, but Nietzsche had these moments of incredible meaning and well-being when he would bless life. He wasn't sitting in Swan and Edgar's when he blessed it. He was suffering from migraines and horrible abdominal pains and a variety of other problems. But he felt this incredible well-being that he could say yes to life. And this was something, Wilson was fascinated with these things. What is, what's happening then? What's happening when someone is experiencing this kind of sense of well-being like this, that they're able to say yes to something that shortly before was just absolutely wretched. Again, this is the theme we're going to carry on with. Now, I'm sorry this is a bit squished in there. Um, but one of the things that Jung and Maslow and, 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 and Wilson share is the idea that human beings have an inbuilt, inherent drive to grow, to develop, to evolve. To, in a phrase from Nietzsche that Jung liked to quote, become who they are. Become who you are. Jung called this the individu- individuation process, or simply individuation. And this was the gradual formation of the individual through a conscious relationship with the unconscious. Now, I just kind of quickly grab these things off the the net, just to have something put up here. But I didn't realize it even says, I didn't plan this, but even these things I picked up are saying here that the process of combining the conscious with the unconscious to reach self-actualization. Well, that's what Maslow called his sort of system, his process, self-actualization. And this is a process by which, people become fully themselves. They actualize all that's potential within them. And Wilson had a similar idea. He didn't call it a particular process. But there's something that he calls the evolutionary impulse. And this is an itch for meaning and creative purpose that makes his outsiders so uncomfortable with everyday life that they will do practically anything in order to satisfy it. And if you ever lived with one of these people, you will know this is a pain. They're not very happy most of the time. Now, the work of all three of these, they start from when there's a kind of blockage, a a stoppage in this process. And this inherent drive to grow, to become more, is stalled for some reason. When that is, life has failed. It's become meaningless, pointless, and burdensome. Now, Jung and Maslow treated these problems as forms of neuroses, but not with the idea of having their patients become well-adjusted in a Freudian sense. For these people, Freud and his followers had little to offer, because the very thing that they should be adjusting to, the society, both Jung and Maslow find, was actually below, actually below the human norm. It's a societal norm, it's a cultural norm, but in terms of the psychology that Jung and Maslow were mapping out, it was actually below, it was below norm. Um, and this is also something that William James uh, saw as well. I, I, I jumped ahead a bit talking about his essay, The uh, Energies of Men. Um, but James also saw that the sort of what's considered sort of the average norm is well below what we should be. And in The Energies of Man, he wrote, compared to what we ought to be, we are only half awake. Our fires are damped, our drafts are checked, we are making use of only a small part of our possible mental and physical resources. As far as James was concerned, we were just a few inches short of the patients he was dealing with. But as I said before, they were afflicted with some kind of actual mental problem. We are just afflicted with bad habits. We're afflicted with the habit of what he says of inferiority to our full self. We're inflicted with basically accepting less from ourselves than we should or than we can. We're happy with kind of well, is that, what is it, what, what is it uh, uh, good enough, right? We're happy with good enough, a good enough person, or good enough this or good enough that. Well, that's actually bad. To just be good enough is pretty bad from Maslow and Jung's point of view because um, not only are you sort of keeping mo- a good deal of yourself dormant, what's left dormant will start to sour. It will start to become overripe, and it will because you're not using it in the right way, uh, it will come out uh, in the wrong way. Okay. okay. Now, exactly what it would be like to experience our full self, or at least more of it than we do now, that was something that Jung discovered when he went through his creative illness following his break with Freud. Now, anyone aware of Jung's character and ideas would know that he couldn't have remained a devotee of Freud much longer than he had. And it's actually surprising that he stayed as long as he did. But there were clear signs of friction along the way. One was the famous episode of the poltergeist in Freud's bookcase. I don't know if you know the story, uh, when Jung angered at Freud uh, for dismissing the paranormal, uh, just uh, you know, too court and ignorant of it. Um, Jung seemed to produce paranormal knocks, bangs, noises, in the bookcase, and he's, he basically scared the hell out of Freud. Uh, he tells this story in, in, in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, and basically, he's, vis- he's in Vienna, Jung's in Vienna, he's visiting Freud, and Jung has always, I mean, my book, Jung the Mystic, it tells me Jung has always <coughs> lifelong had an interest in the occult and the paranormal and parapsychology and all these kinds of things, he, he grew up in it, his, his mother was a medium. His cousin was a medium, uh, so uh, he he puts on this kind of camouflage of being a pure scientist. Uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm you know all that kind of thing. But he was steeped in it very much, um, and Freud dis- dismissed it. Even though I did an article about uh, you know why Freud was afraid of the occult, because actually he was obsessed with it. He, he he did a lot of studies in it, but um, he, he he didn't let it let out into the open. It wasn't something that he he talked about clearly. He didn't give full disclosure. About his interest in it, so the official Freud line was all nonsense, uh, but the private Freud line is actually there's something there. Um, but during this conversation, uh, Freud just kept sort of you know dismissing everything um, Jung was saying, and Jung says he start, he started to feel his chest heat up. He said he started to feel his diaphragm get red hot, as if it was like a coal glowing and glowing and glowing, and then you know, Freud said something else, and then suddenly there was a A bang was much louder than that and that. And, oh, what was that, Freud said. And Jung said, there, Herr Doctor, that's an example of an exteriorized manifestation or some other kind of long circumlocution, where basically, there's a poltergeist. Um, And Freud said, bosh. And Jung said, no, sir. And in fact, there will be another one right now. And there was. And I always, and, and Jung says that Freud was aghast. And I can imagine the cigar dropping out of the mouth, and sort of the eyebrows going up or something like that. And Freud was really spooked. He was really spooked. He, 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 he thought Jung did it. Jung did it on purpose to scare him. Later, when Jung left and Freud had a chance to think it over, he realized, you know, it was just, no, he talked himself out of it. But from then on, he was afraid of Jung. He always thought Jung was going to do something like that around him. <laughs> now, but in, in, a, in a broader kind of sense, the friction uh, and more, uh, you know, um, more in line with what we're talking about here uh, was that, as I said, Freud had absolutely no place in his psychology for notions of meaning. And, uh, and he once, when he explained to Jung how, you know, how far reaching the sexual theory of neurosis was, where he basically is saying, you know, great works of art, you know, culture, all of this, they're basically displacement activity, you know, for sexual you know, sexual for sex, basically. And Jung said, well, if that's the case, then, you know, (laughs) everything we created is just a kind of facade. Everything we created is just sort of this morbid um, kind of falsehood, you know, camouflaging what's basically these crude uh, desires, and Freud... No said, yes, yes, that's the burden that you know, we have to bear, and like, he was like, he was taking on this horrible burden, he knew the truth, that, you know, life is empty, it's just about basically sex and violence and all that, and we make these pretty pictures, uh, like, you know, Michelangelo's David there, to make us happy, but in the end, it's actually, that, that's all rubbish, but Jung, any reasonable, sensible person couldn't accept that, I mean, my God, it's amazing how, you know, Freud's ideas were taken seriously for such a long time, uh, uh, by so many people. Uh, but Jung just simply couldn't accept that. Jung knew that there was a drive in us. He, he wasn't denying a sexual drive, obviously. He was another Randy character. He was like Wells. He was another one who, you know, um, uh, you know was an encourageable womanizer in many ways. Um, but he knew there were other drives, and so did Wells. He knew there were other drives, creative drives, and, and even a religious drive. But This was something that Freud denied. And so Jung had to break with him. And I think there you go, talk about synchronicities. Jung had to break with him, well we'll have to break now to give you your 40, the five minute break in between the 45, okay? I was asked to do that, well we'll pick it up with Jung going out of his mind very soon, okay? I, I talked about Jung's poltergeist experience and I just wanted to say he and Freud exchanged uh, some letters about it. And Jung talked about it being related to what he called the perspective tendencies in man, or women as well, obviously. Uh, and This is an early glimmer of what would become uh, individuation. And even at the same time that he was championing Freud's psychoanalysis, Jung was also involved with figures like the Italian Roberto Saggioli uh, and um, the Englishman Maurice Nicol, who was Jung's sort of um, English agent until he jumped ship and uh, got involved with Gurdjieff and Uspensky uh, in the 20s. Uh, but they had what was called the psychosynthesis group. And you probably know Asagioli developed a whole psychology um, called psychosynthesis, so just pointing out that at the same time in Jung you know <laughs> many ways he was kind of working at, at contrary purposes, and uh, we, can't, we can't absolutely ignore the idea that it was you know even though as much as he, he loved Freud actually and wanted to defend his work, it was also a good kind of career move for him uh, to be involved in this new you know science and, and uh, you know, uh, medicine and so on and so on. Uh, so even though while he was supporting and promoting uh, psychoanalysis, he was also working on psychosynthesis at the, at, at the, same, at the same time. Um, but meaning was very, very important um, for Jung. Um, and as I said at the beginning, later on in his career, he said that practically all of the clients who came to him Um, They didn't come suffering from any sort of clinical neuroses. They came suffering from a lack of meaning in their life. And he said that um, in the end the problem was fundamentally how they could arrive at a religious way of life. And by religious Jung didn't mean joining any particular religion because they didn't you know need to go to Jung to do that. It was developing a life based on meaning. A life based on the pursuit of some meaningful experience. Or uh, um, some, some something that was you know more than uh, simply the material um, uh, way of life that was offered uh, off, offered to them, and um, they too they suffered from life failure, in the sense of not having the meaning, and one of the other things that differentiates Freud uh, from uh, excuse me Jung from Freud and also links Jung with Maslow is that um, Jung was focused on the second half of life. He didn't do too much work on sort of childhood, uh, which is what Freud really focused on, the early you know, years of your life. I mean, for Freud, something happens to you when you're six years old, and that's it. <laughs> You've got that for the rest of your life, unless you spend thousands of dollars with the Freudian um, psychologist, uh, who basically lets you talk about it. Uh, every week or so, Um, and um, like Wells and like Maslow, he believed in the second half of life, uh, it wasn't about achieving things, it wasn't about success, it wasn't about making your mark in the world. You've already done that by then. I mean, not everybody, obviously, Uh, and in one sense, I'm kind of a good example of Jung's notion of sort of like a late starter, because it wasn't until my 40s that I sort of became a writer. Um, I did other things before then, but it wasn't until sort of going through, you know, the archetypal midlife crisis that I, you know, I went through a mini kind of creative illness, which is what we'll get onto with with Jung, and then out of that came this new life, this new career, which is pretty much what Jung was talking about, how, you know, um, you do all the things you need to do in the first half of life to establish a family, establish a home and all that, and then the second half you confront notions of the meaning of your life, and this is what, you know, Jung was treating his patients. These, these people, they were not people who needed to adjust. These were not people who had problems with sex or anything like that. They had problems facing life and saying, what am I supposed to do with my life? As Wells as had asked, what are we to do with our lives? And um, if you didn't do that in the second half of life, if you didn't pursue these kinds of things, this was bad news as well. Your, your, your development would be stunted in ways that would affect you uh, very adversely. Okay, now, Jung broke with Freud in 1913 and went through a profound psychic upheaval. Um, Aptly enough, his creative illness, uh, which is a phrase that comes from the historian of uh, uh, the unconscious, Henri Ellenberger, and if you ever get a chance, it's an enormous book. It's called The Discovery of the Unconscious, Uh, but it's an absolutely brilliant uh, history of dynamic psychiatry, and it goes, I mean, obviously Freud didn't discover the unconscious in the same way that uh, Darwin didn't discover evolution. Uh, These ideas had been around for a long time. They packaged them in a very good way, uh, and they made very good arguments around them, and they presented them um, in in a way that got across uh, to a wider audience than than had before. Um, But um, Jung says that when the breakup with Freud happened, um, he was plunged into a profound psychic disturbance and uh, depression. And he writes about this in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, which is his autobiography, but also in the Red Book. Uh, and this character here, his name is Philemon, uh, and he was one of the people whom Jung met inside his head. Uh, strangely enough, I think Philemon looks a bit like Freud <laughs> in this painting, if you, if you look at it a bit. You know, it kind of looks like him a bit. Uh, no cigar, um, but any case. And um, this, this was the, the Red Book is the account of Jung's sort of descent into the unconscious or psychotic episode, depending on um, which side of the fence you're looking at these things. And um, he kept a record of these experiences that he was having uh, during this psychotic, this psychic turbulence over many, many years. And then he kept the record hidden, too. Um, it wasn't until two thousand and nine, so roughly a decade ago, that it was published. Uh, apparently, he had—it's a beautiful, you know, old kind of medieval-looking tome that he kept in a hole in the wall. And at different times, he had very—he was—he was very sort of. Uh, he had, he had dif- different feelings about it. At times it was something that it was a treasure possession, at times it was something that he kind of just, oh well, this, this was a kind of extravagance of my youth and all that. So uh, Jung, in many ways, was sort of had vacillating feelings, conflicting feelings about this. Um, but Jung said that during this period, and went on for a few years, when he was going through this psychic turmoil, everything that became his psychology was there. He encountered everything that became this, his psychology. So the collective unconscious, the shadow, you know, all the archetypes, all that sort of thing that all came out of, of, of these strange experiences that, that he went through. Now, I hope I'm not going to disappoint many of you here, because I'm not going to talk about that so much. Um, I talk about it in my book at length. So if you're interested in that, that's a really good reason for you uh, to buy my book. <laughs> But what I'm going to talk about is the method, what Jung did when he descended into his unconscious, what he did when he was confronting uh, these images and talking to Philemon and quite a few others in there. I mean, it's a remarkable account. I mean, one of the things Jung talks about what he called the objective psyche, which I think is a much better phrase than the collective unconscious. Collective unconscious has, has connotations that are like mass mind, and it's kind of like something that's built up over time. When he talks about what he calls the objective psyche, it's not about that. It's not about a kind of psychic residue that's built up over millennia, and then you know, we have access to it through our deep unconscious. No, it's a completely other dimension of reality that Jung just slipped into when he went through this period. And people like Philemon, And others. There was a spirit named Ka. Uh, There was Salome and Elijah, and other characters came to him and talked to him. And one of the things Philemon said is that you know, your problem, Carl, you think your thoughts are yours, but they're not. They're like the animals and the plants and the flowers in the forest. You share the forest with them. They're not your plants, they're not your animals. You are in the space, and we're here too. And you can understand. Why, Jung might have wanna kept this to himself. You can imagine what people might have thought about the psychologist who spends a lot of time at home talking to people in his head. Um, It it was a tremendously disturbing experience for Jung in many ways. Uh, There were times when he says to get some kind of relief, he went to the shores of of, uh, Lake Zurich and he was building sort of sand castles and mud pies and things like that. And people would often go, like on boats along the lake, and they knew where. Here, Dr. Jung lived. And when they saw him over there making sand castles and mud pies, you wondered like, ooh, what's going on uh, with Dr. Jung there? Um, so what I want to talk about is actually what Jung did. What was he doing? And what did he teach his patients to do, his clients to do? Now, this act of imagination is basically... A way of having a conscious dialogue or communication with the unconscious. That's something I'm trying to do now as I talk to here. If I think too much about it, I'll, I'll stop, because the intuitions, the sort of you know, sort of creative hunches and things that are, I'm ad-libbing as I talk are welling up as I go. If I think too much about it, it'll it'll stop the communication. It'll stop it'll stop the the dialogue. But this is what Jung developed. He 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 says that what he did was instead of trying to f- fight off all these Fantasies that were coming to him that were basically he felt he was going out of his mind. He kept having visions Uh, He kept having certain sort of dreams and precognitive experiences and strange synchronicities where something that was going on inside his head Would be mirrored out in the outer world and all that Um, And uh, this is when he kept the loaded pistol under under his pillow and when the pressure uh, That uh, was too great Um, And so instead of blowing his brains out he decided okay if I'm going to go mad I'll just go mad. So he stopped kind of fighting off the fantasies, and he stopped fighting off all the this, this sense that you know reality was, was opening up before him into a big you know, rabbit hole, and he had to keep away from it. He let himself drop. And what, as I said, he found out that he had a way in which he could talk to the inhabitants of, of his psyche. And it, again, it's not his psyche. Well, save for the end he was its. He belonged to the psyche rather than the psyche belonging to him. He was something that was an inhabitant of this interior psychic realm that Jung found himself in with these other people as well. Now, the reason I want to talk about um, active imagination and, and um, what, what actually Jung did um, was that I think he missed something. I think he missed something um, he was very, understandably, preoccupied with the contents of the unconscious. He was very, I said understandably, preoccupied with the images that were coming to him and the fantasies and all this sort of thing. And I don't think he paid a lot of attention to actually, and how to say this, what was happening to him, not insofar as the contents were coming, but actually his his own state, his own kind of state of consciousness, his own sort of state of being. And this is something that his patience would reflect on, though. And Jung was already familiar with active imagination, because in some ways, we are all familiar with it. Um, We have an opportunity to engage in it at least twice a day, and that's when we're falling asleep at night, or when we're waking up in the morning. Because the actual process of active imagination is very similar to a natural phenomenon that takes place, which is known as hypnagogia. And hypnagogia or hypnagog is a Greek word meaning leading into sleep. Hypnosis sleep and agog is like a demagogue, is a leader. And they, they people cut, you know, they split hairs and they talk about hypnopompic when you're waking up. Uh, believe me, if you want to practice this, if you can lay in bed in, mor- in lay in, in bed in the morning and try to be hypnopompic, do it. Because if you try to do it at night, more times than not, it'll just have a bad night's sleep. Basically, what you do is you try to remain awake as you're falling asleep which sounds contradictory but this is what you do and if you can manage to do this we we do have a certain there's a certain. some people are able to extend it for a long period of time the 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 Swedish uh, scientist and religious thinker Immanuel Swedenborg apparently he was able to stay in this hypnagogic state for hours at a time uh, he didn't visit the collective unconscious he went on journeys to heaven and hell and the other planets and the angels came and took him to, and they showed them around heaven. They showed them around hell. Uh, if you ever get a chance, his book Heaven and Hell—it's—it's—it's it's, it's very dry, but it's actually kind of a rough—a rough guide to the inner worlds. It's a rough guide to what what the, these interior spaces are like. Another Rudolf Steiner, when he read the Akashic record, um, he was someone else who had this natural ability to somehow enter into this in-between state for long periods. Jung was someone who was able to do that too. We can do it too. We, we can do this too ourselves. We have access to this. And um, it, I'll tell you, it's, it's actually, you know, you, if you just watch yourself as you fall asleep, you can see images pop up. Sometimes you hear voices. Sometimes they say things. They sound absolutely absurd. But if you think about it, actually, they mean something. They mean something. They, they speak in a strange, symbolic way, but it's not random. It's not um, just rubbish. Uh, Jung was very aware of the work of a colleague of his, a fellow named Herbert Silberer, um, who was in the Freudian circle. He wrote an early paper about hypnagogia. Silberer was actually interested in the relationship between psychology and alchemy before Jung, Jung was. Uh, he wrote a book called Hidden Symbolism in, in Alchemy or uh, in something like that uh, where he talks about the relationship between psychology and alchemy. Sadly Silberer was someone who felt the wrath of, of Freud uh, and when he in all innocence disagreed with Freud about something uh, he was cast out of the Freudian circle. Uh, and basically wound up committing suicide. Uh, This happened to more than one of Freud's followers. There's a book called Freud and His Followers by Paul Rosen, and he tells a few stories about a few uh, Freudians who wound up committing suicide because Freud had kicked them out of the inner circle. Jung almost committed suicide. So Freud had a powerful effect on the people that were close to him. Um, So Jung was familiar with this state of being sort of in between sleeping and waking, and having dreams kind of take place in front of you. And, but again, the thing, with, the thing with Jung is that he's very frustrating because he hardly ever talks about this stuff up front. He, it's never in the center of a major work of his. It's never in some place you can find it very easily. Everything he wrote about active imagination you have to hunt for in, in commentaries, in forwards of somebody else's books, in footnotes and stuff like that. The best people, if you want to read about it, People like Marie uh, Louise von Franz, who was uh, a brilliant uh, follower of Jung, a much better writer, uh, much clearer, and she writes at length and very succinctly about it, and it basically, you know, tells you all about it. Um, and this is also true of another very important idea of Jung's that's linked to active imagination and is linked to everything we're talking about today, called the transcendent function. Now, the transcendent function is more or less the motor of individuation. It's the result of a union, a cooperation between the unconscious and conscious mind, and it's also the inner drive to growth that brings about or forces this kind of union. Now it's called transcendent not in a mystical sense, not like transcendental meditation or or something like that. It's transcendent because the effect is to lift the psyche up. It lifts the psyche up above some situation it feels trapped in. Um, what Jung found is that people would be completely flummoxed by some kind of, um, you know, something that seemed absolutely impossible to solve, some conflict that was just beyond them. And it was driving them crazy, literally. That's why they came uh, to see Jung. And they were absolutely convinced that, um, you know, there was nothing they could do. And then suddenly, suddenly, the problem... It's not solved, but it's not seen as a problem. It's not a problem anymore. Why is it not a problem anymore? Has the problem changed? No. The patient had. The person had. They were raised up a bit. They were taken up above the current situation and could see beyond the roadblock, and it no longer was as important as it was. And not only was it not longer important, actually the situation could produce actual, the opposite delight or joy, or happiness. Again, it's this kind of thing where something that seemed horrible, just, just, like, just like with the um, second wind, just like with the neurotic patients suffering from life failure. No, I can't. I can't possibly. No, I can't possibly do it. Wow. This is exactly what would happen with Jung's patients, whom he had taught how to practice active imagination. Now, I mentioned the transcendent function here. He says, it's not something one does oneself. It comes rather from experiencing the conflict of the opposites. I've questioned that, and I also think that Jung didn't know that he had somehow made it happen himself, or at least got his patience to make it happen. Jung, again, Jung as she Jung is as she said, he's very concerned about the hubris of rational thinking man. I'm in complete control. Of everything and he wants to say no you're not there are forces greater than you that you have to you know um, make an arrangement with And this is the unconscious it's not the dark evil unconscious of Freud but it is some other power that's larger than you so Jung kinda wants to minimize what we can do you know my effort I'm gonna go out and do this I'm gonna go out and individuate today you know he, he kinda wants to minimize that and say no just relax and get out of its way and let it happen now this is a very good advice I think we're often in her own way most of the time. But at the same time, there's a kind of passive character to this that I think Jung, if he he just lifted the pedal, foot of the pedal a little bit more, I think he would have noticed what I'm going to try to talk about here today. Okay, now one of the best places if you want to find out about active imagination and the transcendent function, Jung wrote a commentary to a book called The Secret of the Golden Flower and this was a translation of an ancient Chinese alchemical text that was done by his friend Richard Wilhelm, uh, who, of Wilhelm, uh, who uh, also was famous for a translation of the I Ching, which at this time Jung had been using and practicing, although he didn't tell anybody about it. He was interested in the I Ching, which is, you know, is an ancient Chinese method of divination, and it relates to Jung's notion of synchronicity, where he said there a meaningful coincidence, something happening inside your head in your life, something happening out in the world. There's no direct relation, but there's a meaningful one, and it's so meaningful that you just can't ignore it. Um, Jung was, you know, plunged into this sort of stuff in the twenties, but he didn't, he didn't talk about it very much. It wasn't until, after his uh, late in life, relatively uh, sort of by the fifties, after he had a heart attack, and an out of body experience, um, and he realized that it was time for him to sort of give up this pretense of being a scientist all the time and actually say, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, this, all this wacky, crazy, paranormal stuff really works and really happens, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in it. Um, but in The Secret of the Golden Flower in his commentary, well, again, what Jung does, if you know his writing, he, you know, he, he wrote an introduction to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and he wrote an introduction, I think, to one of D.T. Suzuki's books on Zen, and he's written introductions to books on alchemy. He's always saying, oh, well, what those people are doing, they're really what I'm doing, but they didn't know that they were doing what I'm doing. And so he explains how the ancient Chinese text on alchemy is really a work about um, um, active imagination. And um, Is that Jung? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, they're doing quite a bit actually um, but in embedded <laughs> embedded in uh, his commentary to the secret of the golden flower Jung talks about the remarks that the patients or clients that he had to whom he had taught how to do active imagination what the result was for them It's not so much the fantasies they had it's not the content oh I saw this archetype I saw that one, that kind of thing it's not that it's how how they felt, the effect on them, how it affected them, because these are people that came to Jung in a crisis. And he said that the patients outgrew problems and reached a new level of consciousness. Some higher or wider interest arose on the person's horizon. And through this widening of his view, the insoluble problem lost its urgency. Some wider sense of meaning put the problem in perspective. And from the vantage point of the new, higher, and wider self, was reduced to practically nothing. And this is, again, from Jung. What on a lower level had led to the widest conflicts and panicky outbursts, viewed from the higher level of the personality, now seemed like a storm in the valley, seemed like a high mountaintop. So that suggests to me that the, 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 the reason this act of imagination, or one of the things that the act of imagination did, regardless of whatever the contents were and I'm not I'm not trying to demean them in any way I'm just trying to look at look at something else because I think often you, you know you kind of go down this yellow brick road trying to check out which archetype you, you dreamt about last night or something like that and like I think it gets a little confusing at times for me at least um, you can say I'm trying to understand the phenomenology the phenomenology of active imagination what, what's happening to consciousness what's happening to my inner world when I'm practicing um, active imagination okay now, the result of the transcendent function being triggered through the practice of active imagination led to unusual knowledge coming to these people, unusual powers as well, such as I could never have imagined before. Again, that sounds very, very similar to me to Second Wind. That sounds very similar to me to the neuroesthetic patients who said, oh, I can't possibly get up and make myself a sandwich. And suddenly, they're cooking dinner you know, for everybody in the neighborhood. All right? Jung himself spoke of releasing unknown potentials. The poltergeist in Freud's bookcase was one of those unknown potentials. I mean, Jung believed in these higher, wider kinds of powers. He tried to make them sound very scientific. And I think he gets tongue-tied doing that often and and knots himself up in in different ways. But he basically believed in things like precognition, synchronicities, past lives, he talks about things like that, and you know, and all this kind of thing. Unknown potentials, there's a vast area of consciousness, a vast area of untapped resources, untapped mind inside us, and the transcendent function is a way of sort of getting some of that stuff up and running. Everyone must possess this higher level. This is something that's there. It's not just the few people that came to Jung or Jung himself that experienced this. Everyone's got this. We're all ill because we're not experiencing these things. We are all suffering from a mild case of life failure because we are not feeling this kind of thing. We're not feeling like the insoluble problems in our life are something that we can just take care of and move on to more important things. We're confronting these sorts of problems from a level at which we're much below our optimum, what we should be. If we were up to our optimum, and I'm not talking about some Ayn Rand kind of go get them kind of thing. I don't mean, it's not motivational kind of talk. This is actual, you know, consciousness. This is real, real stuff we're talking about. And if we were up at these kind of levels, these problems wouldn't be problems. They, would not, they wouldn't cause the kind of panicky uh, neuroses and, and, you know, absolute kind of hysterics that, that, that they were causing for Jung himself and also Jung's patients. Failure to do this results in the unused potentials going sour. This, William Blake, William Blake knew what Freud knew, and Jung knew well in advance. The poets know all this stuff before the psychologists do. This is one of the things. If you read Ellenberger's book, *The Discovery of the Unconscious*, who discovered the unconscious? Goethe, Novalis, Hoffmannsthal, Hulduin. Uh, uh, um, These are the great poets. Uh, from the 19th century, they were living the unconscious. They were expressing it. They were creating symbols of it. They weren't analyzing it in that way. So, you know, we don't consider them the discoverers of the unconscious. But the poets always know in advance the the same things that the doctors find out later on. And everything, everything about repression, is contained in that one line. When thought is closed in caves, then love will show its roots in deepest hell if you don't use the powers they go sour and they'll find some other way of being used and it's not always going to be a good way as I said Colin Wilson wrote quite a few very very good books about how frustrated creative drives can lead to things like serial killing and other acts of violence when the thought is closed just save it for one. when the thought is closed in caves it's it's not allowed expression it's not allowed to live it doesn't go away it finds a little nook somewhere inside you and festers. And finally, it comes out in some horrible way. We have to grow, develop, evolve, and go beyond who and what we are, or we pay the price. Okay. Now, somebody else who understood this was Abram Maslow. Now, As I said, Maslow started out as a Freudian, but he left. And the reason he left is that he was tired of studying sick people. He said the only people he met when he was a Freudian were sick people. And what do sick people talk about? Their sickness. And he was, he was depressed. He was, getting, he was becoming a sick person. He had to go and see a psychiatrist because he was seeing too many sick people when he was a Freudian. And what he decided to do is he said, OK, I'm going to do something radically different. I'm going to study healthy people. You could, I think it is the case there may be bits and pieces here and there, but pretty much up to mass though, there's no psychology of a healthy person. There isn't a psychology based on health, psychology based on sickness. Psychology based on life failure, psychology based on repression. Psychology based on what's wrong. And the norm was what we saw already well-adjusted, having enough sex, enough to eat, you know, uh, being able to afford afford Netflix and everything else on television, all that kind of thing. We should all be wonderfully, I mean, we should all be incredibly happy. We should all be remarkably transcendent. Well, I don't, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I, I don't think we, we are. That's why we're here today at a, <laughs> a lecture about meaning. Um, so all those sorts of things that we're supposed to adjust to just, just didn't work. And so what Maslow discovered was that healthy people are very different they're very different than the sick people he was meeting when he was a Freudian, and what he found that he found that human motivation or human development seemed to follow a kind of structure, and it's what he called the hierarchy of needs. And uh, I mean, when you look at it, it seems simplicity itself, and the, the idea that no one had sort of thought of this before is, is absolutely remarkable. It seems so obvious, but Maslow basically says, you know, we start out having ba- basic needs. We need to eat, right? Need food. Um, Drink, that kind of thing, um, then a place, shelter of some kind, a home, you know, some place that's yours you can retreat to. And then once you have that, you know, you want some kind of relationship, you know, a, a sexual relationship, or, you know, a love relationship. Some or it could just be relationships, just a friend or something like that, you know, some kind of contact with others. And then after that is what he called the self-esteem level when basically what's important to you is, is the basically you know the good you know the, the, the people around you think highly of you and you, you have the, the high regard of other people now just tangentially I think today with all the social media I think society as a whole is stuck at that self-esteem level because what do we do we want everyone to pay attention to us and tell us how much they like us and only got 25 likes from that post or you know something like that we're, we're all kind of competing with each other to get the self-esteem from each other and Although that may seem reprehensible, in a way, I think it's actually a good sign. Because for Maslow, the next level is what he called the self-actualization level. And that is almost the same thing as what you meant by the you know, individuation. You become a full person. You're no longer motivated by the lower needs, which he called deficiency needs. These are all things we lack. And the absence of them makes us uncomfortable. And we we're driven to go get them, but we don't lack self-actualization. So when you are actualized, your need is to express that. So they're creative needs. They're needs of the imagination. They're needs of you know growth and development in some way. Um, it's it's you're no longer in clutching, grabbing for things. You have something that you want to bestow. You have you have art, whatever creativity, whatever love. You know, and it doesn't have to be, you'd have to go paint a masterpiece. It could be someone who just, you know, likes collecting stamps. But they put a lot of effort into it, and they get a great return from that. Or something like. Or maybe they paint you know, watercolors on the weekend that, you know, nobody likes with their family. But they get something back from that. You know, they get, it's, it's a positive response from that. And the other discovery, oh, uh, what I should, well, let me see. I'm going here. Well, I was going to say, and basically Maslow said, as as the earlier needs are met, the higher needs sort of emerge. And that, again, seems to parallel with Jung's idea about the second half of life. The first half of life is focused on meeting those deficiency needs, and the second half of life is focused on the actualization needs. And again, here's an area where Maslow and Jung sort of um, relate to each other very closely. But one of Maslow's other discoveries, and he he discovered quite a bit, there's a strange phenomenon that he called the peak experience. And just by its title alone, what does, its, what does it echo? Same, I I well, I was going to say, Jung talks about the transcendent function. You you said? Okay, I didn't hear you. And it's the peak experience. So just the words they're using, the language, suggests something very similar. And the peak experience were sudden, spontaneous eruptions of joy, delight, affirmation, and meaning at nothing in particular whatever it is that triggers the peak experience is something that five minutes earlier didn't trigger the peak experience it did nothing I, I, I can't hear you I'm sure you got very important things to say you'll be the first question or the first answer I hope Okay. long um, again this it's it, th- that to me is a remarkable thing something that two minutes earlier is nothing suddenly it's oh my god it's, it's, you know, what a discovery. I didn't know I had this jewel, you know. And um, Maslow gives some uh, interesting examples. He, one is that he talks about a marine who um, had been stationed on an island somewhere for a couple years and hadn't seen a woman for like a couple years. And then he was sent to another camp, and I guess a nurse or somebody walked by. And he was stunned. He said, women are very different than men. And he was just, he was stopped in his tracks. Suddenly, you know, if he saw the nurse every day, this wouldn't have meant anything to him. But suddenly some, you know, some everyday, well, I don't want to say everyday thing, but you know, an an everyday occurrence suddenly triggers this experience of something seen in a completely new light. And it's kind of radiant with this meaning that was there all along, but he wasn't able to see it. And there's other examples, like um, he talks about uh, a mother who's getting her children off to you know, work in the morning and, um, you know, the husband, uh, children off to school and the husband off to work. Uh, this, you know, Maslow's write, writing this stuff in the 30s or the 40s, so if it sounds a bit, um, you know, old-fashioned, let's, let's just give him a break. And uh, in the midst of all the hubbub of, you know, every day is the same thing she does every morning. Suddenly, a little beam of sunlight came through the window, and she realized how lucky I am, how incredibly lucky I am. I love my children. I love my husband. And, every, and you know, something that happens every day suddenly a, a, another light is thrown on it. And she's raised up above the normal experience. She can see it in a bigger context. Um, another example is a woman after a, a, a big party. She have a big party in her flat and she's looking at the wreckage and it's a complete tip. It's a horrible mess. My god, it's going to take a day to clean up. And then she just said, what a wonderful party. It's like everything, it's just, it just, again, it's the kind of thing where something is seen in a different way in exactly the same kind of way that Jung's um, patients saw it when the transcendent function kicked in for them. Maslow didn't speak about the unconscious in the way that Jung did. He didn't really talk about the unconscious. He wasn't really a depth psychologist. He was actually sort of a a behaviorist in a way. He was about motivation, what motivates people. So it's very visible you know, in what he's looking at. He's not, he's not kind of lift up your head and let's get deep down and check out the collective unconscious. He's not doing that. He's saying, what, what is driving people to do that? But the kind of people who were having these peak experiences were um, people that were creative, open-minded, intuitive, trusting, generous. And they possessed other characteristics that are associated with a kind of unself-conscious, free personality, a carefree personality. Not necessarily care less. They're, they're conscientious, they take care of things, but they're not, they're not driven by all these kinds of neurotic petty worries and, and fears and uh, you know, uh, uh, cares all the time. Um, and they're more immediate and, and direct, even impulsive, uh, than someone who's concerned about decorum and you know, uh, you know, doing uh, the proper thing. You could say they acted naturally, which in a way was you know, a kind of way of saying they're acting from their unconscious. Um, okay, let me get back to, but, um, Maslow didn't believe that peaks could be produced, but if we accept the experience of Jung's patients and how they described it, I would say it seems like they did produce peak experiences. They didn't call them peak experiences, but how they described the effect of practicing the trend or the active imagination. Triggering the transcendent function, it seems to me, is very much like how Maslow's the people Maslow was studying described the peak experiences. So, if they somehow made it happen, then maybe Maslow was wrong. Maybe peak experiences can be produced, can be induced. And again, he's not talking about people that are rushing off to go have ecstasy somewhere. That these people aren't rushing off all the time, thrill seeking. They're not going out of their way. Looking for peaks, they happen to them because of how they are, because of the way they live their life. It's, they're, they're not someone. They're, they're not, you know, going across the Atlantic in a dinghy, or they're not, you know, um, you know, skydiving over the Himalayas or something like that. You know, I mean, this is one of the things I think. with people they have read about Maslow, they don't quite get it. They think, oh, he's talking about people going out of their way to go have some remarkable experience. No, they're not doing it. The remarkable experiences happen to them. In their everyday lives, in everyday context. Someone I think who didn't get this was the sort of post Jungian thinker James Hillman. And I think he wasted a lot of paper talking about no, we have to talk about the Vale experience as long as the peak. If you're going to go up, you have to go down into the valley. And he writes eloquently about, about the, the virtues of depression, which I, I, I just, it just makes, it's madness to me. It makes, it makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, the peaks aren't something these people are running around to go get. They're suddenly living as they should be. Consciousness is suddenly working as it should work. They're no longer suffering from a mild dose of life failure. They're no longer like the neurosthetic patients of James's. They're actually y- real humans. You know These are the people we should start building up the psychology from, and this is what Maslow is trying to do. Because I want to say, like the unconscious in this context I'm not talking about the contents, except. It, it, if it's nothing else, it certainly is the reservoir where we keep all of our energy. This is where the excess, you know, the extra petrol tanks are. There's somewhere, call the unconscious, the subconscious, call it George. Call it whatever you want to call it. It doesn't matter what we call it. In, in effect, there's some other part of ourselves that we are not immediately in touch with all the time, but which on occasion we do become in touch with, and not only are we in touch with it, it infuses us with an enormous amount of power and energy. And when that happens, the question of things being meaningless is just ridiculous. We're overwhelmed with meaning. The world is saturated with meaning. It's dripping with it. And if we saw that all the time, that wouldn't be good either. That's why we actually have a, a mechanism in the brain to cut out the meaning because too much meaning. If you know, if you read accounts of people taking psychedelics and other things like that, you know, they're just completely knocked over by, you know, a, a lamp. You know, <laughs> there's um, a wonderful story. Well, one of the my, my uh, people I've written a book about is the Russian philosopher Peter Yuspensky and uh, he talks about how uh, following William James uh, he wanted to experiment with nitrous oxide William James wrote a famous paper uh, on called on some Hegelisms in which he says in order to understand the philosopher Hegel uh, he, was, he was taking nitrous oxide because uh, under the effect of nitrous oxide he felt he could understand Hegel's uh, <laughs> philosophy. now I wonder down in Brick Lane or in Camden Town, when I see all those little canisters down I'm amazed at how many readers of Hegel <laughs> there are out there today. Um, but um, the reason I'm saying this story, the telling the story, is that when Uspensky was in his uh, flat in St. Petersburg, and he, he had uh, you know, taken or inhaled the nitrous oxide, he was smoking a cigarette, and he looked over at an ashtray, and suddenly everything about the ashtray came to him in one go smoking who, who, who first discovered tobacco and you know knew you could smoke it and that kind of stuff copper the ashtray was made of copper when did smelting begin when did mining begin you know every little bit I mean every, every little thing every little thing is is comprised of I don't, infinite amount of data everything is full of lots of information we only see a tiny bit of it when he when he wasn't under the influence of the nitrous oxide Spensky looked at the ashtray and just you know, tapped his ash into it. It wasn't anything. Under the nitrous oxide, he looked at it, and it expanded into this enormous encyclopedia of meaning. And he wrote down on a piece of paper to try and remember this experience, and he read it the next day, and it said, a man can go mad from one ashtray. <laughs> is what he wrote down. So this idea that everything has all this meaning into it that we don't see all the time. And I would say a lot of it we don't see for very good reasons. In some of my books, I talk about the... Uh, the theory of the philosopher Henri Bergson, um, the French philosopher, who basically said the brain's function was eliminative. The brain's function was to keep most of reality from getting to consciousness, because if all of reality came in, we would just be completely knocked out. We wouldn't be able to deal with it. William James talked about the blooming, buzzing confusion of the world until you know we are able to organize things, and the brain can. You know, obviously something must happen. A baby is born. He just you know they can't <laughs> do everything. Everything is just completely overwhelming them. Gradually over time, the mind puts things in orders. And in order for us to function, in order for us to get on with things, you know, we, uh, Algis Huxley, he experimented with mescaline. Uh, and he says, if everyone took mescaline, there'd be no wars, but there'd be no civilization either. <laughs> and the reason was, was that when he was under mescaline, he looked at the, the dishes that were in his, his sink in his flat in Hollywood, and they were beautiful. They were too beautiful to wash. <laughs> Who could bother to do that? And I'm sure they were beautiful. But you know, after a while, I mean Mrs. Huxley would have quite a few dishes, you know, to deal with. So Huxley has to be able to, you know, pull back from that, that vision of intense meaning in order to do practical kinds of things. Okay. So just just as in individuation, just as young says that, you know, we, we have these potentials and we must actualize them. We, we, we must, you know, make these possibilities real. Maslow says the same thing. What a man can be, he must be. We call this need self-actualization. All right. Okay. So just to kind of <clears throat> recap here. Essence of the peak experience seems to center on something that is already known being seen as radically new. But this newness is at the same time felt as something familiar, hence the of course effect. That, if you want two words to sum up the content of every mystical experience, they are of course. Of course. The problem is, of course what? You know, practically every mystical experience comes to that. It's a sense of recognition, of remembering. Ah, yes, yes. And then, then it's just an ashtray the next day or something like that. But this, this to me, I think this is a, a, I don't know, you know, if too many psychologists have actually talked about this phenomenon. But it's a strange phenomenon. And it's not, it's not alien. It's not like Sartre in, in Nausea, when his character looks at a doorknob and he has no idea what it is. It's not, it's not oh, this refreshingly new doorknob, which is filling me with a sense of delight. No, it's an alien threatening thing. Why is it an alien threatening thing? Because Sartre was suffering from a very acute case of life failure. He was suffering from a very acute case in which he saw no meaning whatsoever. And he developed a massive philosophy based on the idea that life is meaningless. I said that earlier. And it's precisely against that kind of philosophy that Wilson, who we're going to get on to very soon, developed his, his philosophy. Okay, they seem to come unbidden but are associated with positive, purposeful, active, attentive, responsible, creative lives. They have the effect of strengthening the psyche, increasing our ability to cope with life's challenges. This is one thing that Maslow... Uh, also said about self-actualizers. They're very good copers. They d- they deal with things easily. They deal with the world. They're not overcome by problems too much. I, they're, they're the kind of thing, you know, the old adage, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. If you want something done, give it to a self-actualizer. Although, they may be too busy actualizing themselves to be too concerned about what <laughs> you need to do. Uh, they're very selfish. They're very ruthless. Um, they're very much... They're not self-absorbed, but they know... Growing and evolving and developing is a serious business, and it requires you know a lot of attention. Um, Jung's patients, with Jung's patients, peak, peakers accept reality and things as they are. They no longer want to change things. Not in the sense that you know they don't want to get out of an abusive relationship. In the sef- sense that the problems that before seemed insurmountable, and that they wanted to run away from, now they're able to deal with them. They change. The world doesn't have to change. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Goethe is, go out and do something good without having to change the world. I think that's a very good thing to do, you know. Go out and do something good without having to change everything around you. And then then we'll we'll do something good when society's right or civilization's right and all that. Then we'll do something good. No, go out and do good things now. Because now is when they need to be done. For Peekers, as for Jung's patients, everything becomes more alive. Life more abundant. And Colin Wilson decided at 16 that he didn't want to commit suicide because he imagined what the acid would have felt like going down his throat, he realized what he wanted was life more abundant. And this comes from the Gospels. This goes back just as much as the idea of life being meaningless or valueless goes back into ancient times, the idea of this more abundant life goes back, too. That's what the Gospels are saying about. That's what, you know, pretty much all the religion is about in some way. It's about... Imbuing you with the seriousness about life, and so that you can live it in such a way that you have it more abundantly. And that doesn't mean more things, it's inside. It's a life. You're not life failure, you're beyond life failure. And if you have enough abundant life, the problem of life failure can go away completely. Okay, here's here's the crux they cannot be induced. But as I said, what about Jung's patients? whose accounts of the effect of active, imagi- active imagination sound very much like Peaks. Okay. Now, I'll try to get through this quickly. <clears throat> the whole idea of this, the Peaks being something that we know already, but we see in a different way, was something that fascinated Wilson. Wilson became aware of Maslow's work Because uh, Maslow had read uh, Wilson's third book, called The Age of Defeat. Uh, It came out in a US edition, the title The Statue of Man. Uh, uh, Wilson's US publishers wanted a more upbeat uh, kind of title. And um, what The Age of Defeat is about is it's the analysis of the loss of the hero in modern literature. Uh, Wilson compares people like Ahab, or Raskolnikov, or Faust, or some of the other. Major kind of Titanic figures from 19th century literature with contemporary literature, you know, of of his time, um, you know, so uh, you know, kind of the Stanley Kowalskis of uh, you know um, Tennessee Williams, or even closer to home uh, in Wilson's own generation, John Osborne, um, you know, the characters like in uh, Look Back in Anger and all that, uh, or Death of a Salesman, basically saying that. Um, Either the, the heroes of today aren't heroes, they're anti-heroes, and they're usually crushed by life. Or if they're not crushed, they set their sights very low, and they're able to succeed. So uh, Wilson's friend, John Brain, his, his book Room at the Top, and it's about someone gradually getting up, you know, some working class person gradually making their way up to the top and all that kind of thing. And they're well written and all that, but the, 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 the ceiling is very low. The whole kind of you know, heroic uh, world that uh, uh, Nietzsche's Zarathustra Kind of, uh, you know, um, occupies, uh, or uh, you know, <coughs> people like uh, Dostoevsky's characters in *The Brothers Karamazov*, where you know, this is like vast, enormous profundities in the background. That's not happening in uh, 20th-century literature. And this is this came out about 1950, uh, 57. and um, Maslow was interested in this because Wilson has an idea in this book. He says that. What, what we suffer from today is called the fallacy of insignificance. And this is the idea that we're nothing special. Um, and again, it's not in some superiority kind of sense So I'm very special, because, you know, Wilson wouldn't have cared about that at all. But it's the idea that, again, human life is meaningless. There's nothing particularly important about our life here. You know, we're, we're basically clever animals. Um, we live, we eat, breathe, and all that kind of stuff. And that's about it. Anything more than that is pretension and that kind of thing. And Mazel um, saw... An echo of this in something that he called the Jonah complex. And this was something that he discovered among his students. Because he once famously asked his students, I mean, who among you uh, believes that you're going to do very well in your career? Who among you believes that you don't, you're going to excel? You're going to be, you know, one of the tops in, in your field? And nobody raised their hand. And then he said, Well, if not you, then who? Who is it? Some other room? Are they all hanging out in some other room? You know. This this sense of diffidence. And Jonah, if you know your Bible, he's someone who tried to avoid his destiny as a prophet. He ran from the Lord. He ran from the the voice of destiny. And, you know, in the end, it didn't do him any good because eventually he had to accept who he was. Insignificance in the Jonah complex seemed to be talking about the same um, kind of thing. And again, Maslow found this diffidence pathological. It's people actively accepting a lower... Standard, people going out of their way because they don't, they don't, they you know they don't want to stand out. They don't want to, oh, you're you know you're a bit uppity or you know who do you think you are that kind of thing. So the sort of you know the the, the tyranny of, of 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 the majority uh, had its effect on people. But even even one to one, you know, they they weren't you know, and even with students that he knew had the ability, they had the talent, they just lacked the self confidence. They lacked the belief, and they even lacked the idea that they should have the belief because that they said this was somehow well it's a bit you know it's standing out too much aren't I that kind of thing uh, and this again this is pathological they were they were actively accepting a lower standard for themselves and Maslow came to understand as even before we said if you don't actualize these things they get you they come and bite you in the back and Maslow said if you go out of your way to be less than you are you will regret it for the rest of your life and I don't know if he did any follow-up studies with his students, but one wonders how those students uh, turned out later on. And again, it's, it's, again, it's like G.K. Chesterton. I mentioned him earlier. Chesterton once said, why is it that there are so many brilliant, you know, uh, promising children and so many dud adults? You know, Every child seems fantastically promising. There's a whole new world. And then you, know, you meet up with them 30 years later, and you know, they're nothing in particular. What happens? Well." As I said, Wilson became interested in Maslow's Peaks because they reminded him of a phenomena he had observed in himself, and he called it the indifference threshold. He had another name for it, um, and that's related to the story of of how it happened. And uh, I'll tell you the story quickly. Uh, Wilson was hitchhiking from London to Peterborough. And he had no interest in going to Peterborough. It was like an obligation. His girlfriend's family was there, and he had to go there. And he didn't particularly want to stay in London, either. Um, nothing particularly motivated him. He was like Oblomov. You know, he couldn't bother to get up out of bed. He couldn't bother to do one thing or the other. But because he was actually, you know, he had to go on this trip, so he went. So he starts hitchhiking out of London. Um, and he gets a lift, and a, a lorry picks him up. And then soon after they're driving, the, the car's motor starts to make a clunking noise. And the car starts to slow down. And the driver says, oh, sorry, you know, something's wrong. i got to pull over and let you out. And so this doesn't bother Wilson. He's like, oh, well, who cares? I get there, I don't get there, it doesn't matter. Who cares? So he just gets out and he goes and he hitchhikes again. Now, one wonders about synchronicity because he gets a lift from another lorry. And they're in the car. And then, funnily enough, the same thing happens. The motor starts making a clunky kind of noise. And the driver says, I don't know. I don't know about this. And Wilson says he had the first kind of positive response was basically you know, to himself. All, all day, he's like, it doesn't matter anything. But suddenly now, um, he, he's got a kind of positive response from it. And uh, he oh God, OK, now I've got to go out. But the driver suddenly says, well, hold on a second. If I keep it at this speed, and like 20 miles an hour or something like that, I think we can get you know, to the next, to the next place. And Wilson discovers about 10 minutes later that he's absolutely delighted that they're going to get to the next town. And he's urgently listening to the motor of the car because the driver said, if, if you hear this kind of pinging sound, let me know because that, you know, I'll have to slow down. So from being absolutely indifferent to everything, it, couldn't matter, it didn't matter to him whether he got a ride or not. And then now, you know, he's basically giving up in despair about the whole thing. He suddenly finds himself... Happy. He would have said he had a peak experience. He didn't know what the term was. But again, he had pushed past his indifference threshold. And the indifference threshold is a state of consciousness in which pleasant stimuli no longer reach us, but which we can, in which we can still be affected by unpleasant ones. See, this is taking things for granted, right? When you're in that mood, no matter what good thing somebody could tell you, it doesn't matter, anything like that. You know, it doesn't matter. It could be one million, you know, whatever. Inconvenience or crisis in its removal not only pushes us past the indifference threshold. Wilson went from being indifferent, whether he got to Peterborough or not, to being really excited about getting to the next town and really you know, interested in what the motor sounded like. You know, his, his consciousness was focused on this kind of thing. But it moves the threshold itself or even removes it, depending on the crisis. If this happens, everything is seen as new. Now, two examples that Wilson gives and many of his books. Um, uh, one is Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky was a member of um, a sort of radical you know, group, uh, revolutionary group in, in his early days. And he was arrested with the group. And they were in, uh, scheduled to be uh, executed, to be shot in the Seminovsky Square in St. Petersburg. And uh, Dostoevsky is sent out with the other members of, of his of his uh, group, uh, and he says to himself, "Well, I've got a, a few minutes left, you know, to live here." And he, he sort of thinks about his, you know, the other people around him. He thinks about his family and all that kind of thing. And he, you know, he suddenly, um, uh, you know, realizes he's about, you know, he's about to die. And at the last second, there's a reprieve, and they're not executed. And one of the one of the one of his fellows actually goes mad because you know, suddenly he thought he was going to die and suddenly it's not. But Dostoevsky talks about suddenly everything seemed infinitely valuable. Everything seemed infinitely important, infinitely significant, infinitely meaningful. And he takes this phenomenon and he puts it into his novel Crime and Punishment. And if you know the novel, the character Raskolnikov, uh, he says that if he was given the choice... Uh, between standing on a narrow ledge in the midst of tempest and storm and darkness uh, and, you know, extinction now, he would pick standing on the narrow ledge because Dostoevsky's had this vision being reprieved from execution of the infinite value of everything. Now, similar story, similar phenomena that Wilson talks about is uh, what happens with uh, the novelist Graham Greene. He's another person that uh, Wilson hates. He's one of his noires. He's another one of these dreary, depressing people who paint a very dark vision of the world. But uh, Greene Green was someone who suffered terribly from life failure. And he writes in an essay called The Revolver in the Corner Cupboard about how, when he was a teenager, uh, he found his, his older brother's revolver in a cupboard. And he was so bored to tears. That he must have found the ammunition as well. So he put a bullet in, in the chamber, took the gun out to said Common, and then you know, sp- spin the chamber, and then he put it to his head. And when he heard just a click of the hammer on an empty chamber, suddenly, from being bored enough to think playing Russian roulette is a good idea, he saw infinite possibilities light up in everything. Just like Dostoevsky. The world has suddenly become resplendent with meaning. And he saw things opened up for him that he didn't even know existed. Now, Green was a very difficult case because he kept going back and trying to blow his brains out. And it's amazing he didn't actually do it. I mean, it might have been a loss to literature, but it would have been quite a few uh, less boring and dreary novels in the world. But even this became repetitious for him. But what happens in both cases, Wilson saw, was that there was a kind of this, a kind of Crunching up, you know, you're about to get shot. You're about to be executed. You put a gun to your head. You're about to do that. So Wilson sees as a kind of this is it the crisis and its removal. It's a kind of concentration, a kind of sudden, you know, convulsion of concentration, and then whoosh, like that. And I'm doing this. I'm doing exactly what Wilson would have done in quite a few talks himself. So Green, Wilson. They find themselves suddenly delighted in a situation that minutes earlier had caused nothing but distress. Again, it's another example of something going from absolutely meaningless or even, you know, even sort of you know, um, threatening to suddenly having a completely different outlook and a meaningful one, a positive one, an affirmation one. And say it's the same effect as the bullying treatment first resistance, uh, then joy. It's also the same as second wind. Now, I think I'm getting notice that I'm going over time here. Um, Something popped in. Okay, I'm just going to get through this quickly. It's the same thing. Wilson talks about the same phenomenon, something that he called dual-value response, which, again, is the same kind of thing, where um, something that had, it it drew one kind of response from you, a negative one mostly, suddenly does the opposite. Um, And it's not merely reversal. It's not black to white or white to black. Because the new meaning is part of a general widening and raising of awareness that transcends the earlier limited view. So um, what, it's not as if, oh, suddenly you know, I like something that I didn't like. No, it's that you've raised up above a situation, and that, that simple pairing of like and don't like doesn't work anymore because the context is much lighter, uh, wider. OK. Again, similar to Jung's experience, experience of Jung's patients and, and Maslow's peakers, What had happened? How had Wilson gone from indifference to delight? Or asked the same question in a different way. How did he become indifferent in the first place? Two minutes. Okay, I'm going to do this very quickly. Um, Okay, I'll try as quickly as possible. To get through this, Wilson, Wilson, to try to understand this phenomenon, Wilson developed um, an idea of something he calls the robot. And to put it simply here, the robot is a labor-saving device that allows us to pass knowledge and skills on to an unconscious part of ourselves freeing our conscious self for further action when you learn how to type you had to do it you know bits and pieces where's every little key you had to know where it was you did one or two fingers like that you learn how to drive a car every little thing you have to do consciously full attention has to be to uh, every action you make when you ride a bicycle similarly learn how to play musical instruments learn how to tie your shoes These all start out something that's difficult to do. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of concentration. Then suddenly, at some point, you can do it without thinking about it. You don't have to think where is the letter on the keyboard. You don't have to think how to make that right hand turn or something. Some other part of you knows how to do this. The problem is the robot does its job too well. It takes over doing things that we would rather do ourselves. So when you go home and you want to listen to Mozart's Jupiter Symphony, you're not listening to it. The robot's listening to it. When you go home and see your wife or your husband or your girlfriend and you give them a peck on the cheek, the robot's doing that. You're not doing that. The robot is another way to sort of talk about this notion of life failure or indifference. The robot's not a villain. We need to do it. Just think now, if you, you know every time you tied your shoes, it'd have to be exactly the same way it was the first time you did it. You know, we wouldn't get on. We wouldn't be able to get on to the kinds of things that Wells is talking about at the beginning of the talk. Wells doesn't want to bother about all this everyday stuff. He wants to get on to higher, more meaningful, more creative kind of pursuits. Well, the robot allows him to do that. But again, it does its job too well. T.S. Eliot uh, in... <coughs> one of his poems, he asks, where is the life we have lost in living? Well, it's in the hands of the robot, but there are moments when the robot and you or I work together, and Wilson has collected an enormous number of these uh, in his many books, and um, I'll just try to end it on this one. One of the most famous ones uh, starts at the beginning of Proust's novel uh, remembrance of things past. And remember earlier in the talk I said sometimes uh, peak experience or sometimes uh, meaning is a piece of cake. Well it literally was um, in the beginning of Proust's novel. That's a, a little pastry called a Madeleine. And if you know the book Proust starts out uh, about telling a story about how he tastes one of these Madeleines dipped in a kind of tea. And suddenly He's remembered of something, but he doesn't know exactly what it was. And it all comes back to him. Not just the facts of what he was remembering, but the actual 3D vivid reality of it. And he remembers that the Madeleine dipped in tea was something that his aunt used to give him when he was a young boy and when he went on holiday in Combray. But the fact that he did that, he knew that fact. He knew that already. That wasn't important. It all came back to him. The total reality of it came back to him. He was remembering, he was having an experience of it, of non-robotic consciousness. He was having a moment of a time when he was experiencing it, life the robot wasn't experiencing for him. And why I have this here is that the way Proust describes it in the novel, although the narrator ostensibly isn't Proust, but we know it it is Proust writing it, he says when he has this experience, when suddenly he tastes the madeleine, and he too is lifted up above his normal life. He says the vicissitudes of life were now indifferent to him; its disasters innocuous. I cease to feel mediocre, accidental, mortal. And he dots the i's and crosses the t's in another of what's, what he calls the moment bienheureux, the moments of, of bliss, basically. When towards the end of the book strangely enough, the narrator is, like Jung's patients, is having panic attacks about his ability to write. Um, he's losing all self-confidence in how he could write. He doesn't think he's going to be able to do it. And he's basically, you know, it's just completely, um, the whole idea seems uh, just ridiculous and, you know, it's not going to happen. And then, just like that, it changes. And he feels that the difficulties which had seemed insoluble had lost all importance, just like Jung's patients felt, and similarly, perhaps not in so many words, just as Maslow's peakers did. So, and this is just one of many different examples throughout literature that Wilson um, mentions. He talks about Hermann Hesse's novel uh, *The Steppenwolf*, where the Steppenwolf Harry Haller similarly is afflicted with life failure, and uh, he's walking around the town where he lives and he's avoiding his room because he knows if he goes home he's going to be, you know, uh, uh, seduced by the knife and, and wants to slit his throat. And uh, he stops at a cafe and he has a glass of wine. And again, out of the blue, he has a similar experience. He starts to drink a glass of Moselle and he says he's suddenly reminded of Mozart and the stars. And he realized that his life didn't hang on these petty trivialities, but were, you know, part of larger sorts of things. So. What I'm trying to do here is show how what, what, Jung, what Jung's patients felt after they practiced active imagination, what Maslow's peakers felt in their peak experiences, and these, these kinds of non-robotic experiences that Wilson mapped out um, in his many books and different literatures and developed uh, methods of trying to achieve himself. He calls it Faculty X, the bird's eye view. Again, lift it up, something lifted up. He says how close-upness deprives us of meaning. If you go to you know, uh, the Tate and you got up that close to the canvases, you get a very interesting view of the texture of the paint and that sort of thing, but you wouldn't be able to see the whole picture. You, know, you wouldn't be able to see the whole picture. You need to step back in order to see the whole thing. And when you see the whole thing, that's when the meaning comes in. Okay, so Jung's patients complain of a loss of meaning in their lives. Those whom Jung taught how to do active imagination remarked that its effect was to raise them above in a situation. Through the transcendent function, they saw things differently and realized unknown potentialities. Maslow's peakers do much the same. Their description of peak experiences are very similar to the accounts of Jung's patients. Wilson's indifferent threshold is directly linked to life failure, the collapse of meaning. Crisis and its removal creates a state of consciousness similar to the lift of the transcendental transcendent function, and the peak experience. What seemed already known is revealed to be mysteriously meaningful. OK, so I'm going to have to leave it there. Maybe I'll leave that up. And um, I think I'm allowed for a few questions, or? I can't. OK, well, you've got all the answers anyway, right? So uh, thank you very much.
0: Hey, guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.